Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mid Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Entries are now open for the 2021 Inglis Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the Inglis Bloodstock team. David Tootle is one of those remarkable jockeys whose love of the thoroughbred and passion for race riding remain intact after 43 years in the business. At 59 years of age, he's still out of bed at 3.45, six mornings a week, before heading to Morfordville, where he and wife Sarah work their small team of four horses. David rides the quartet in track work, Sarah looks after the stable chores, while her husband ducks away to work a few horses for trainer Bill Bogarts. David Tootle, or Toot as he's widely known, has no idea how many career winners he's ridden, but believes he's won 114 stakes races, including two at Group 1 level. Like all jockeys, he's pushed many an ordinary horse around, but he also got to ride three superstars of the 80s and 90s, in races. He rode extensively for trainers like Bart Cummings, Colin Hayes and John Hawkes. He won a Group 1 for Jeff Murphy, but he's always been just as happy to drive to a faraway meeting to ride one for a battling trainer. One of his greatest thrills was to win a race on Ponty Paul at Gawler in June of this year for his son David Tootle Jr., who's training a small team at Murray Bridge. Some journalists had the temerity to suggest that a win of such great sentiment might trigger his retirement. He obviously brushed aside that suggestion because he's had a number of rides since and shows no sign of calling it quits. Let's welcome to the podcast an evergreen jockey who's as South Australian as the Barossa Valley. A big welcome to David Tootle. Thanks for your time, Dave. Thanks, John. Um, before we get before we get started, I must say that uh, when you first uh, messaged me about this, I actually thought it was one of my mates messing around me. I thought, <laughs> now what would John have to talk to me about? And I'm trying to work out who's setting me up here. And I was waiting for your phone call, and as soon as I heard your voice, I knew straight away that uh, it was for real and it wasn't uh, Luke O'Connor or Morris Murphy messing around with me. So <laughs> I, was yeah. glad, I was glad that no one was messing around with me. Goodness me. Well, they wouldn't do that, would they? Oh, they certainly would do. There's people out there in this <laughs> racing game who would always want to set you up for something like this, but it's an absolute honour to be talking to you. 
I've known your name from the time I started, and to be talking to a racing legend, it's an honour. It's a delight to talk to you, David Tootle. You're a legend in your own right. You've been, as I said, in the business for 43 years, and you are as South Australian as the Barossa Valley. You know, at this stage of your career, 60 next year, you remind me of jockeys like Queensland's Cyril Small and Robert Thompson here in New South Wales, who were still going strong in their early 60s. It's hard to get get rid of the bug, isn't it? Hard to get it out of the blood. Oh, it's hard to get, get it out of the blood, but uh, being put in the same bracket as Robert Thompson, um, I don't think I could ever get to his lofty heights. He's just been – he's just, just a – everyone just knows Robert Thompson, you know. He's just been an, a legend in, in racing in Australia. And the other one I mentioned, Cyril Small, was the regular rider of Vaux Rogue, a horse that you got to ride on one occasion, and we'll talk about that later. Dave, the rise in the limit weight in recent years has taken away the edge that lightweight jockeys used to enjoy. Now, there were times throughout your career when you could ride very light. In fact, you still can. That, that's correct. I've been able to ride uh, light uh, mo- most of my career. Uh, to be honest, um, earlier this year when I got back from holidays in America, which was in March at the beginning of this pandemic, I was actually struggling my weight having been away for a couple of weeks and then self-isolating. And the horse you mentioned at the introduction, Ponty Paul, mm. I had to l- actually lose a kilo to ride her at 57 on my first ride on her. Ah, which is unusual, is it? It's it's unusual, but uh, that's what happens when you go on holidays. And mm. um, But now that I'm doing both riding and training horses, my weight's come to back down to where it should be. Mm. One of the four horses you and Sarah are training currently is a lightly raced six-year-old gelding by the name of D. Tentori. Uh, in fact, you would have ridden him had Morfordville on Saturday had the bulk of the meeting not been called off because of the TAB power outage and you'll be lining up with him uh, on the Monday. Now, you got him from another stable, Dave, and you won first up with him at Gawler. What's so special about this bloke? You really love the horse, don't you? Yes, it's, it's just one of those horses. He's nothing special. He's nothing to look at. Um, it's just that I believe somewhere down the line he's been not been, you know, like in, in our stable they're part of the family, and sometimes when they come from the biggest stable, they're just just a number. I'm not suggesting it was his previous trainer, Andrew um, Andrew Dale. Mm. It's just you know when they're in bigger stables they can be just a number, and when the horse came to us, um, he just needed a bit of loving. Yeah. And the fact that I get on with him and he gets on with me, yeah. honestly, he's probably been my most favourite horse that I've ever dealt with. Um, mm. I just, you know, just love the horse. Yeah, I could tell. You must have been a starry-eyed kid in 1976 when you walked into the coming stable in Adelaide to become apprentice to a man who had already won five Melbourne Cups. Now, by then, Bart was spending a lot of time in Melbourne but did you see him from time to time? I saw saw him from time to time, but I dealt most of the time with his brother, Pat. Mm. Uh, and Pat was a lovely person. He was uh, hands-on, uh, easy to talk to. When Bart was in Adelaide, he, he, you know, he was easy enough to talk to. 
Mm. But you only got to see him probably three or four times a year. But um, mm. he he was very easy to talk to as well. Mm. They tell me Pat Cummings uh, was not only a nice bloke, he fancied a little punt. He, he had a, a very strong reputation as a most astute punter. Yes, well, he would be at Moorfield every morning standing out in the middle of the uh, track with the plovers swooping him <laughs> and he would just stand there clocking his horses and I'm sure that he'd be watching everyone else's horses yeah. just waiting for that next winning bet. Yeah. Well, the exciting occasion of your first winner came on the 11th of June 1977 and it was the day after your final mandatory trial ride. Now, let's talk about the trial firstly. The horse you rode in that trial had a pretty high profile. Yes, he certainly did. Um, I had. Uh, it was funny because on the Monday I hadn't even had a trial, but I think leading up to the Monday they knew that um, the horse I was about to ride on the Saturday, Barangere, mm. was basically just for me to go around, sit, steer, and she would win. Mm. So I had three trial rides on the Monday. I had seven on the Friday, and my last being the legendary Think Big. Think Big, yeah. Think Big. Um, dual Melbourne Cup winner, who I believe if he was racing now would be at the back of the field. But anyway, he's a dual Melbourne Cup winner, and um, yeah. he was a you know he was a very good horse at the time. But as I said, he'd probably struggle these days. Yeah, you know, David Think Big didn't win in between his two Melbourne Cups. And he never won again after his second Melbourne Cup. Uh, he, he missed one full year for some reason when he was a seven-year-old and then they gave him another crack when he was an eight-year-old, but he was struggling. Yeah, well, I think at that, I think at that age, you take 12 months off, you're basically not going to come back. So anyway, he's won two Melbourne, he won two <laughs> Melbourne Cups and we'll always remember that. They can't take that away from him. Now, your first winning ride, Baron Jaray. Which track was that? Uh, it was Victoria Park. Um, it was race one, number one. I remember it well. Um, that was back in the day when there was actually crowds at the races. Mm. I had I have the photo somewhere around, and there would have been 3,000 people in the middle of the track uh, to watch the race. Mm. Um, I don't know how many are on the out, out of the track, but um, like as I said, those were the days when there was actual crowds at the races. Mm. It's good that you had an opportunity to ride at Victoria Park, which is long gone now, but what a beautiful place. I drove in there once and somebody showed me around, lovely, quaint old grandstands. It was like stepping into another era. That, that's right. The grandstand is still there. I think it's heritage listed. Oh, yeah. And every now and then um, there's talk about going back to Victoria Park. I don't think it would happen, but I think, South Australia needs a track like Victoria Park to come back mm. to revitalise the whole racing industry. Mm. Another name horse you got to ride in track work was Golden Black, who won the Melbourne Cup in 77. Good stuff for that, dinner parties, all this information, Dave. That, that's right. Well, I actually rode him first and second up after his um, Melbourne Cup year. Mm-hmm. So I had I had a couple of rides on him, and one was at Victoria Park in a thousand metre race. I remember it well. He found the line very well. What I do remember about the race was I was behind the barriers, and the starter came up to me and said, "The stewards are watching you on this horse." 
I'm thinking, what did the stewards be watching? A Melbourne Cup winner for in a thousand metre race first up. <laughs> anyway, I got through that, and then next time I rode him was in the twelve hundred metre race at Morphville, and he never got warm. But uh, mm. as we know, stays sprint well first up, and then they take a few runs to come good again. Mm. You were pretty chuffed when you got the opportunity to have your indentures transferred to a man called Colin Hayes at his magnificent Lindsay Park Training Centre at Angerston. So different to working horses in the hustle and bustle of Morfordville. How was life for a 16-year-old kid at that time working for a racing empire as it was? Well, it was different because everything up there is done differently. Your horses are trained differently. Your horses are looked after differently because it's the country environment. Um, I thought, well, if I'm ever going to make it as an apprentice, that'll be the place because obviously I'd left Bart's because he was about to uh, close up his stable in Adelaide. So I went to uh, Lindsay Park and was apprentice at uh, Lindsay Park for probably 18 months or so. Mm. The late Peter Hayes was working with his father at that time and he said something to you one day that didn't do your confidence much good. Yeah, well, actually, at, at that stage, we had had a bit of a fallout and he never said it to me because they oh, yeah. actually sacked me. Mm. And my mother rang and said to Peter, what's the problem? And Peter said, David will never make it as a jockey. We're, we're advising him he should become a plumber or a carpenter. So anyway, um, I was stood down for three months and my indentures were cha- uh, were transferred to one of the local trainers at Moorfield, Joe Lockyer. Mm. Now, Joe Lockyer had been a very good jumps jockey early in his career, Dave, which I'm sure you would have heard him reminiscing about. He won a big one too. He won the Great Eastern at Oakbank on a horse called Crusoe Cloud. I bet he looked back on that with some affection. Oh, Joe, apparently, I never seen Joe ride, but mm. apparently he was a very good um, jumps jockey. I always hear the stories about how before they went out to have a ride in the jumps races, mm. they'd all have a little swig or something just to help them get through the race. <laughs> but uh, yeah. They were just they were just stories. I'm pretty sure they were true, but uh, the mm. things they got away with back then that you couldn't get away with now. Mm. Was he still training jumpers at that stage of his career? Not not in my time. By no. then he was just training um, uh, just just flat horses. Mm. Funny thing, your relationship with Colin Hayes turned the full circle because about five years later he gave you a Group One opportunity. Now, by then, you were well-established in Adelaide and you actually chased this ride on a filly called Casey Bell in the South Australian Oaks. I think you rang for the ride, didn't you? That's right. Um, one of the racing journalists, it uh, was a uh, fellow called Ian Thomas, actually rang me and said, I'm giving you a heads up that um, Hazers have got four runners in the Oaks mm-hmm. and they're looking for a rider and your name was mentioned. I thought it quite strange because it was happened in years gone by mm. so I actually rung Peter Hayes and I said have you got uh, any rides going in the Oaks he mm. said we've got one but I'm not really sure what's going on he said I'll chase it up and get back to you mm. I reckon within two minutes he got back to me and he said um, you can ride Casey Bell in the Oaks 
Mm. He actually said, because she, she'd won three leading up to this, mm. but she'd only won up to 1,400. He said, you're on the best horse. We believe you're on the best horse, but um, it's a big jump in class, and we don't know how she's going to go at the 2,000, and I suppose the rest is history. Uh, she settled in the 2,000 and was too good on the day. Mm. Well, there were 18 runners in that race, Dave, and you won very easily, so she did have a bit on them, and, and she obviously stayed the trip with no problems. You must have given her a nice cushy run, did you? Well, I just I drew perfect, ended up with the perfect run, and I remember it clearly. As we straightened, Lester Pickett was actually riding in the race. Goodness me! And, yeah, yeah. He and he uh, no, sorry, it was John Miller was riding in the race. And as we straightened, he tried to hold me in a pocket, mm. but um, my horse was able. To, well, I was able to get him out the way. I don't know how. Mm. And she outsprinted him on one very easy. Who was that rider you mentioned? Uh, Johnny Miller. Oh, Johnny Miller from Western Australia. Yeah, John Miller from Western Australia. And as you know, you'd know John Miller. He'd be doing he his best to keep you in there. He was doing his best, but I was I, he was obviously on a horse going nowhere and I was on a horse at full steam and I stuck my head in there and got through and he won very easy. Yeah. Well, four years later... You had two rides in Adelaide for two wins on a filly called Marmalita for a very high-profile Victorian trainer in Jeff Murphy. You won the Lalia Stakes on Marmalita at Morfordville and one week later you added another Group 1 South Australian Oaks to your CV. Was Jeff Murphy there himself, do you recall? No, I, I can't recall him being there. Mm. As you said, I won the week before the Lalia. Mm. And to tell you the truth, I wanted to actually get off of uh, Marmalita and the Oaks to ride the stable, mate. Mm. But um, I th- thought about it because I had the option mm. and I thought about it. I thought, no, I thought to myself, just stick with your old rule, just stick to the one you won the week before. And because mm. it's, it's hard to get off a winner no matter which race you're going into. And um, mm. it was a small field, it was wet and she was just too good. Mm. 1987 was a big year for David Tootle. You got a call from a bloke called Don Bartscheiger to ride a horse called Cool Rocking Daddy in the Melbourne Cup won by Kenzai. Now, Don obviously thought you'd make 48 kilograms easily, but it wasn't that easy for you at the time. You made it, but just. No, well, there's another story going into that. On the Saturday before... I actually didn't ride at Moorfield because I was going to be too heavy for all of my rides. Mm. So I rang up and said that I wouldn't be riding because I was too heavy. Mm. So we went out for lunch on the Saturday. We went out Saturday night. And then Sunday morning comes and I'm getting dressed to go to my auntie's wedding. Mm. And as I was leaving the house, I could hear the phone ringing. It was obviously before mobile phones, mm. and I wasn't going to go and answer it. And anyway, I walked back and answered it, and it was Don Barcheter, and said, uh, can you ride Cool Rock and Daddy in the, the Melbourne Cup? He said, he's got 48 kilos. Can you make that? I said, yeah, no worries. <laughs> so I so I put my sweat gear under my suit to go yeah. to my auntie's wedding so I could sweat it out at her wedding. Goodness me. And and you sat with that on all night, even went to the reception wearing a sweatsuit. Went, went to the reception wearing the sweatsuit, got back back from that. It was very hot that day, so I took a 30K ride on the bike 
uh, lost a bit more weight, and then the next day I took some fluid tablets, and within 24 hours I've lost just over six kilos. Goodness me. How did you feel on cup day? I, I felt all right. I think it was the adrenaline. Um, I think I was more relaxed because without putting the horse's ability down, he'd only won one race, and that was 10 days before the race. Mm. And he probably, you know, there was only 21 runners that year. So I was pretty relaxed knowing that, well, we're going around, mm. run a horse that, you know, if all things go right, he's probably going to be competitive, but on form he wasn't going to be. Mm. And um, I was all right, but we got halfway around in the race and it all started to catch up with me, uh, losing all that weight. Mm, of course. He started at 66 to 1, uh, but, you it, you know, it's hard to miss the opportunity to have one ride at least in such an iconic event. That, that's right. Um, it had, I never got the opportunity before. I actually rode in the Melbourne Cup before an Adelaide Cup, and I'd had opportunities to ride in the Adelaide Cup, but I just wouldn't waste for what I would say was slow rides. Mm. But um, when this opportunity came up, I wasn't going to miss it because I thought this might be my one and only, and mm. and all these years later, it's still my one and only opportunity to ride, ride in the Melbourne Cup. Mm. How much were you travelling in those days, David? Were you getting to places like Port Lincoln and Mount Gambier? I was I was travelling everywhere until, you know, probably 10 years ago. I was doing all, all of it. But uh, obviously in recent times, getting a bit older, um, things aren't – I'm not travelling as much as I used to. No. I'd like to hear about your association with John Hawkes who started his training career in Adelaide in the early 1970s. He had held a dual licence prior to that as a jockey and trainer, but that was halted uh, when the authorities over there uh, changed the rules and he decided to become a trainer. He had to go one way or the other. You were stable jockey for him at one stage. Yeah, I was stable jockey for, you know, well, without really knowing. It It was for a couple of years. Um, I, I rode everything. Um, I'm just one of those people. People say that I'm quite lazy, but I actually, if I've got a job to go to, I will actually get there. Mm. So I showed up every day to ride work, and every day you ride work for people like John Hawkes, they reward you. And mm. um, I was riding everything in Adelaide. If you know if there was rides there, I was getting them. Mm. John became legendary in later years as a, as a pretty tough taskmaster when it came to jockeys. Was he always a bit that way? Oh, he let you know if he thought you rode one bad. <laughs> he's never been backward in going forward. He's, um, yeah. as it shows in his uh, in his son Wayne, he's very open and says that as he sees it, whether he's right or wrong, mm. you you know where you stand with him. There's no um, no guessing what they're thinking. No shades of grey, as they say. Exactly. Now, Dave, years later when John Hawkes was operating stables in four states for the Crown Lodge organisation, you actually had a brief stint in the Brisbane stables, which were run by Michael Hawkes. I think you were there for about four months. How did that pan out? Uh, that, that was all right. I was actually living in Caloundra and driving to Eagle Farm every uh, six days a week, mm. and I actually enjoyed the stint there. Um, because at the time I was struggling to get a ride in Adelaide, I just thought, oh, well, we'll just try something new. My sister lived in on the Sunshine Coast. I thought, we'll just go up there and see how it goes. Mm. 
I was there for four months. I only actually rode one winner, none for the Hawks stables. I think my best for them was I rode three seconds at the Gold Coast one Saturday. Mm. But, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I just always struggled going the opposite way uh, mm. because I'd gone our way all my life. When opportunity came to go there, mm. I really struggled going the opposite way of racing. Now, what do you put that down to? Just something I wasn't used to. Um, yeah. And you go there and most of the, as I say, most of them country tracks are little goat tracks because they're really tight and turning. Mm. You go to Esk where I rode a winner, a Kilcoy. They're only 1,200 metres around, and it's um, it was just – I just never handled going the opposite way. It was all right when you went to Eagle Farm or Doombin. Um, obviously, the Sunshine Coast, which I rate probably the best track I've ever ridden at. Really? But those uh, country tracks, they were terrible tracks to ride at, and I just, just never got used to it. Mm. You fancied the anti-clockwise, as they say. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just used to this way of going, and – Every now and then I've gone the opposite way and I, I think I've still only ridden the opposite, uh, that one winner the opposite way. Mm. Dave, just get you to stand by for a moment. Uh, we're going to pause to clear a commitment on the podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk about three wonderful horses that you got to ride in races in the late 80s and early 90s. Back with David Tootle after this. Savatiano seems to save her best form for the spring. She was dominant in winning Saturday's Group 2 Hot Danish Stakes at Rose Hill and by coincidence it was this time last year when she outclassed the opposition to win the inaugural running of The Hunter at Newcastle. Next Saturday, November the 14th, sees the second edition of the $1 million race, three-year-olds and upwards, over 1,300 metres. The Hunter highlights a metropolitan class meeting on the pristine Broadmeadow track, supported by the Spring Stakes for three-year-olds and the Max Lees Classic for two-year-olds. One week later, the Illawarra Turf Club will present the second running of the gong for three-year-olds and upwards over 1,600 metres, also offering a purse of $1 million. Two metro meetings on famous provincial tracks, the Hunter at Newcastle, the gong at Kembla Grange, part of the new look of New South Wales racing. Now, Toots, let's look at your involvement with three great horses of the late 80s, early 90s. Firstly... The wonderful Rubaton, who had 16 starts before going to stud. He won 10 of them, four group ones, and one of them was a Cox Plate. Now, he had only two jockeys in his entire career. You rode him as a three-year-old at his first five starts. He won three for trainer Pat Barnes, and Harry White, of course, took over later. Had you had a previous association with Pat Barnes? Uh, besides dating his daughter for nine years, <laughs> yes, I had I had I had a association with Pat. Yes, yes. I actually at the, at the at the time I'd been dating his daughter Michelle, so um, yeah, I was very close to the whole family. You can say that again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now let's look back on Rubiton's first start. It was a race called the Bonnets Saddle at Morfordville, August nineteen eighty six. It was a very wet day. What do you remember of the race? Gee, you beat a good horse. Military Plume ran second. Well, 10 days before the race, I was at uh, Balaclava and David Hayes was there. And I knew 
Rubiton was about was about to start his racing career, and I said to David, "Have you got a runner Saturday week in the uh, three-year-old over twelve hundred? He said, "Oh, we're running a horse called Military Plume." Mm. And Military Plume was a was a proven horse by then. I said, "Oh, is that all?" I said, "You're going to need something better to beat the thing I'm riding." Yeah. And he just took it. He just took it as a joke. And anyway, um, yeah. as it turned out, uh, Rubiton beat Military Plume. Yeah. You went to Melbourne after that. You won a 1,200-metre three-year-old at Shandown very easily. Then you won a race at Mooney Valley by five lengths. So three for three. What were your thoughts at this stage of his career? How far did you think he'd go then? Oh, I knew how good he was. We actually, after his third win, he was in a um, a very good mile race at Mooney Valley. Mm-hmm. And Pat was in Adelaide and I was in Melbourne looking after the horse. And on the Thursday, I rang Pat and I said, I think there's something wrong with this horse. Mm. I think he's sore. Well, I knew he was sore. I said, you better get here because he was due to fly in on the Saturday. Mm. Anyway, he flew in on the Friday and the horse was sore. Mm. We actually drove to Mooney Valley to scratch him because back in them days, you did everything by phone or went to the office. We actually showed up to scratch him. They thought we were joking. It was a hundred thousand dollar race back there, and they thought we were joking because he was he was fours on favourite to win this mile race. Mm. Anyway, he was sore, and uh, we, as I said, I just knew how good this horse was. Mm. Well, he went for a spell because of that lameness, and when he came back, he ran sixth in the William Reed, beaten four point three lengths by Canny Lash, and I don't think he had a lot of luck in that race, Dave. No, he drew, he drew wide, and I just had no luck at all. Now, inexperienced horse against the older horses, and they they you know no luck, and they were just too good for him on the day. Whether we had luck, he would have beaten them. Who really knows? But um, he just wasn't ready to take on the older horses in the mm. William Reed. Well, he had another run in a Group Three at Sandown, won by Northern Copy. You ran third in that, and that's where you parted company with Rubiton. Were there um, any ill feelings at the time or did you cop it sweet? Oh, well, you basically got to cop it sweet, but um, it was strange because I went out on the Saturday night uh, in Melbourne and when I got back, I got back to my room because I, I stayed in the same room as Pat Barnes and he was still awake. Mm. And I thought, this is odd. Anyway, the next, he, I got in and um, Pat said to me, I'd, I've stayed up to let you know that uh, the own David Bayless wants to replace you on the horse. Mm. I thought, oh, well, you know, that's racing. I said, why? And he said, well, one day we're at the track and you're walking out on Rubiton and you heard Harry White say, what a magnificent horse. What a magnificent looking horse. Mm. And because of those words, they stuck in David's mind and I was replaced by Harry White. Goodness me. If David was deeply touched by Harry's assessment. That, that's right, you know, and um, it, it, Blind Freddy would have been able to know that the horse was just a magnificent horse to look at. Mm. Well, after he won the Cox Plate and the McKinnon Stakes, which were his last two runs, he went to stud at Mike Willis's Transmedia Park in New South Wales and he was later moved to Bluegum Farm in Victoria when Willisie sold his property. Rubiton went on to sire 29 stakes winners, including a dual Cox Plate winner in Fields of Omar. You must look back on him with uh, mixed feelings, but very affectionate feelings. 
Oh, anything to do with Rubiton. Um, you always have mixed feelings. You know, he won, he won a Cox Plate. Um, and you just you just admire the horse for what he was. You know, you you just got to get over it. That's as we say, that's racing. You feel happy for the trainer Pat. Um, you have a little for the owner at the time, but uh, you just got to get over it and move on. While you were in Melbourne with Rubiton, the very charismatic Vic Rail was stuck for a rider for a plain bay with a sunburnt coat by the name of Vaux Rogue. The race was the listed debonair stakes. Now, he'd won only four races at that stage and you wouldn't have realised that you were on a budding champion when Vic Rail legged you on to Vaux Rogue. Had you known Vic oh, previously? No, it was just that he was, he was at the stables where Rubiton was mm. and when I showed up, uh, Vic was there. He needed someone to ride the horse and track work, so mm. I just rode him every day for a couple of weeks and got the ride on him um, that day at Flemington. The, the fun, funny thing about it was he said to me, I, this horse will play around in the barriers, but don't get anyone in the barriers with you because if you get anyone in the barriers with you, mm. he will miss the start. Yeah. So the horse was the horse was playing around, so I got someone in the barriers with him. Uh, despite what I was told and what happens, I got mm. someone in the barriers and he missed the start. Mm. Anyway, he still managed to gather speed and lead, and he ran a very good third. Mm. What did Vic say after the race? Did he realise you'd had a barrier attendant in there? Oh, well, I told him. He wasn't very happy, but uh, it's one of those things. He got over it pretty quick, as Vic did, <laughs> and we moved on. Mm. What sort of feel did he give you? I mean, he'd won four races only to that point in time. Did he feel like a horse who was going to win $3 million? Well, to tell you the truth, after I was sacked off of uh, Rubiton, Vic said to me, well, the day, the last time I rode Rubiton, Vaux Rogue was in that race and he ran last. Mm. And when I was sacked off of Rubiton, Vic said, well, you can stay here and ride this horse if you want. Mm. I thought, well, I run third on him and then he runs last. I'm not going to waste my time <laughs> hanging around for a horse to just run last. Oh, <laughs> and anyway, as it turned out, the day mm. I run third on Rubiton, it was a wet track. And I think we all know how Vaux Rogue went on a wet track. Yeah. So anyway, another wasted opportunity. I could have stayed there mm. and rode um, Vaux Rogue through, but um, mm. I came back to sleepy old Adelaide and just continued on in Adelaide. Mm. He didn't like one drop of moisture, Vaux Rogue, for the rest. He was a hard and fast track horse, wasn't he? E exactly. I think John Scorse rode him in his next couple of rides, next mm. ru uh, few runs, and then uh, Brian York before uh, Cyril Small got there and rode him, basically, for the mm. rest of his career. Mm. And, but Peter Cook actually had one on him too. So, yes, he did. Yeah. Mm. Now, finally, to the coppery chestnut horse called Durbridge, who won 21 races, 15 placings, six Group 1s and $3.4 million. Now, Dave, you rode this horse in his first 12 starts and then once more later in his career, total of 13. You rode him in eight two-year-old starts for two wins, a second in the size produce stakes, and then you went to Brisbane with him for a Group 1, the Castle Main Stakes, and you struck a heavy 10 track 
and he was never in it, and I think you got into strife with the stewards too. Yeah, that, yeah well, we'll get to that. Uh, hmm. Yeah, he was he was just a plain chestnut horse. Um, as I've said to many people, probably the worst bred horse I've ever ridden by Durham Ranger out of a mare that won a maiden at Port Lincoln. Mm. But as I say, most sires throw one good one, but um, most sires don't throw one good one like Durbridge. Unless you look at his record, even myself in recent times, I look at his record and I think, how good was that horse? He was just exceptional. Mm. Um, yes, anyway... Getting back to the uh, Castle Main Stakes, I, w- I went to Brisbane. Another experience of going the opposite way. Early in the race, I'd cleaned a few of the jocks up. I thought, oh, God, I'm in trouble there. <laughs> yeah. So, so, we, so we progressed in the race. I thought, well, I'm in trouble there. So anyway, I cleaned them up again. I thought, well, I'm going to get suspended for the first one, so I might as well do them again. You know, well, not might as well do them again. I just pushed push the issue a little little bit more anyway we weren't even called in over the first incident mm. so anyway i uh, got suspended for the second incident so it's a lo- another lesson learnt. Mm. well next time back in you won first up on durbridge in a 20 horse field at morfordville then you went to melbourne with him to run third in a listed at caulfield and seventh in a listed at flemington on derby day now you didn't realise the stewards wanted to see you after that race, and I think you're on your way to the car park. Well, that, that's right. I'll just get back to the Morphville one. The one at Morphville, mm. we jumped, and I actually thought he had broken down. Mm. So I started to ease him out of the race. We went about, I don't know, 50 metres. All of a sudden, his action freed up again. Mm. So he obviously just hit himself. So yeah. I've gone from jumping, easing him up, to passing 19 other horses. Oh, you went back day, to last, did you? you, you I were... went back to last because I, I, thought, I honestly thought he'd broken down. Mm. So, um, you know, to, for him to be able to win that day, I thought to myself, wow, what a win. Mm. Anyway, getting back to the Flemington one, I um, I, <laughs> I erred on him again where I cleaned up six. I actually got six of them this, time, this day. <laughs> and if you look at... If you look at my record, um, my record's very clean for careless riding. But mm. this day I got six of them and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble here, but I want to get back to ride the horse on the Saturday. Mm. So I quickly packed my gear and headed back to the stables. I'm actually back at the stable sitting there mm. because um, I thought I'll just get out of here, fly back to Adelaide or drive back to Adelaide as we did mm. and then come back on the Thursday and let the stewards deal with me then. Mm. So anyway, I'm sitting there, all of a sudden here, clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop. The clerk of the course came in. He said, oh, we've been looking for you. For you. The stewards want to see you. You've got to go back. Mm. So anyway, I went back, got suspended. I missed the ride on the Thursday. He won, and as I said a few times, the rest is history. Yeah, yes, he won with Mick Dittman on board on that occasion. Then he won the stand down, repl- eh? That was a fair replacement, Mick Dittman. Oh, <laughs> And Mick was at the top of his game in those days. Then he won the Sandown Guineas with Greg Hall. uh, And over the next four and a half years, he won six Group 1 races in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. So, again, you look back, that suspension was very costly, wasn't it? Oh, that that suspension was very costly. Um, As we keep saying, that's racing, you know, you just get over it. 
It was owned by some very close, you know, very uh, close friends of mine. Uh, the own, Actually, uh, D Tentore, he actually races in Durbridge's colours. I've noticed so every time I put So every time I put those colours on, I feel very honoured and privileged that one of the people whose father was in Durbridge is in D Tentore, and yeah. he asked to wear Durbridge's colours, and every time I put them on, I feel very proud. Pink with a purple Maltese cross, purple sleeves and a pink cap. A purple cap. Purple cap, is it? That's correct, yes. Right, yeah. I, I saw them actually. Yeah. I think I was watching the day you won on a D10 Torre at Gawler and the colours leapt off the screen. That's correct. They, actually, it was dark and gloomy that day and because it was so bright, the pink, you could, they stood out. Mm. Now, David, there's another horse uh, we haven't mentioned as yet for whom you had enormous regard. Uh, a horse called Prolific, who finished up winning an AJC Derby in 1984 for Bart Cummings and the late John Marshall. You rode this horse at his first two starts in Adelaide for two wins. That, that's correct. I um, rode him his first start. Um, I don't think they really realised how good the horse was because John Letts, who was a stable rider for uh, Cummings, wanted to ride a horse from the southeast called Fear No Rain who was a very short price favourite, who was just a jump runner. Anyway, I rode prolific. He missed the start bad, circled the field, and he just went whoosh. And I couldn't believe what that horse did that day. Anyway, second start, um, I didn't think I was going to ride him again, but let's see, he got himself suspended. I rode him at Cheltenham, and was, that day he jumped. It was a 1350-metre race. He just got back and went whoosh. And I still believe to this day, if he was injury free, mm. he would have been as good as the other three horses we've mentioned in this interview. Oh, that is interesting. Prolific. He was no, by by a stallion called Vice Regal from memory. That that's correct. And like I said, when he won the AJC Derby. I do recall you calling calling that race. So there was, even though I'm getting older, there are certain things that stick in my memory. Mm, I know he was a nice horse, all right. And you say that he had many problems. He had, he had many problems. I think it was his back was his problem. Mm. Um, I remember talking to a um, trainer who was in, I think he was in New South Wales and went to Queensland. A fellow called Tubby Turner, Ken yeah. Turner, I think his first name yeah, was. Yeah, the late Ken Turner. Yep. Yeah, and he ended up with him later in his career, and he said he was a good horse, but he just had really bad back injuries. Your son, David Jr., actually works for Michael Hickmott at Murray Bridge, but he retains his trainer's licence, and Michael, I think, allows him to keep three horses of his own in the stables. That, that's right. Um, at, when I first started uh, this little venture of training, which I must add I never really wanted to do, but um, after time and with my wife talking me into it, it started. Anyway, getting back to where I was started, when I first started training, my son was at Morphville at the time mm. and he was, it's, it sounds strange, but he was my go-to man. I'm going to my son for advice on how to train horses mm. and just his little bit of advice when I first started was really a big hand. Oh, that's great. And uh, is he frustrated by only having the three horses in work or is he happy with his arrangement? Well, he, ha he had more than that, but um, 
he got the opportunity to go to work for Michael where he was just going to get a weekly wage, train his own horses mm. and enjoy the country life. And he's been up there a few months now and he's enjoying it. And he had a winner a few weeks ago, a third last Saturday. Mm. So he, he just goes along, nothing seems to bother him and he's just enjoying life mm. in the country. Dave, the wraps are big on the refurbished Murray Bridge track. Have you been around? I've been around a few times. Nearly won a race there a couple of meetings ago when I rode there, but it is, it's probably our best track in South Australia. It mm. just sets up, um, every horse gets a chance. It's just a beautiful track. You must have been deeply touched in 2016 when the South Australian Jockey Club paid you a lovely tribute on the occasion of your 40th year of race riding. That was, um, I was touched, but that was, um, at the time, my partner, Sarah, who is now my wife, that was her little brainchild. She got onto them and pushed for the race and they put the race on and it was an honour. It was probably just disappointing. I couldn't get a ride in the race or on the day, so I just went there and enjoyed the day with my friends. I saw a photo taken with uh, quite a number of fellow jockeys at some part of the day and the thing that really stood out in that photo is how much taller jockeys are in Australia in these days. Some of them are very lofty, aren't they? That's right. Um, I always say, you know, the weight scale's gone up, which has probably helped a lot of lot of jockeys. It hasn't helped me because of the weight scale going up, but... Um, now they're just taller and thinner. The day of the short jockey, like I am, is, um, you know, basically gone. Mm. You know, you, if you look in that picture, there are a few jockeys that were smaller than me, especially Claire Lindop, who was standing beside me, but uh, the day of the short jockey's gone. Mm. Well, you've already got a trainer's licence, so it seems a certainty that you'll easily transition into the role of full-time trainer when you finally decide to quit the saddle. I think um, people will want me to ask you the inevitable question, when do you think that might be? Pete, uh, you know, I honestly said my first winner this year, I would probably give up race riding. Mm. And as it turned out, my first ride this year won. Mm. And I thought to myself, no, I can't do that. I've just got, it was, it was three, uh, four days after I'd got married and I thought, no, I can't give up race riding. I'll just keep going. I'm light. I'm fit. Mm. Um, I've had no injuries, touch wood. I'm, you know, very – I'm just still ready to go. So mm. I thought I'll just keep going. And then things were things were going along pretty ordinary. And I kept saying to Terry McAuliffe and uh, James Jordan at the races, I said, I think I'll give up on my next winner. I think I'll give up on my next winner. And then all of a sudden I won on Ponty Paul. And after the race, I knew what they were going to ask me. <laughs> and they said, is that your last ride? And I said, well, <laughs> I knew it wouldn't be, but I said, I said I'll talk to my wife and we'll decide yeah. my future. Anyway, the, I still love doing it. You certainly do. And passion is at the, the bottom of your whole outlook uh, on horse racing. Now, David, you've been it, an institution in South Australian racing and I've been wanting to acknowledge your efforts on this podcast for a long time. Congratulations on all you've done, and thank you very much for being with us. 
Thanks, John. It's been an honour talking to a legend in racing and it's just been an honour doing this. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound.